0: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Jackie Bell, and I'm a senior reporter at Law360, and I'm here today with Josh Becker, chairman of Lex Machina, and today we're going to be talking about a brand new award we've developed together called the Data-Driven Lawyer. Uh, It's really the first time Law360 and Lex Machina have come together to create an award series, and this award really seeks to recognize attorneys who are successfully using data and analytics to, to really meet the challenges of their practice. Uh, we're also joined today by four of the award winners, and you can, of course, read all about them and the Data-Driven Lawyer series on Law360. Uh, but we're joined today by Eric Falconbury, partner at DLA Piper, Kate Gowdry uh, soon to be partner at Kilpatrick Townsend, uh, Evan Moses, shareholder at Ogletree Deacons, and Kyle Poe, a partner at Morgan Lewis. So we're going to talk to them about some of the ways they really put analytics to work and hopefully get them to uh, to share some secrets about their data-driven practices along the way. Uh, I have to say that one of the things I personally was really struck by as we were putting together this series is just the incredible variety of practice areas and uses that these attorneys found for data and analytics, Uh, each of them really seem to to come to this type of practice in their own way and use these tools in really unique and interesting ways. So so I'm excited to kind of dig into this a little more with them and talk a little bit about their process and their strategies. So, so Josh, do you want to jump in here and and help us get started?
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jackie. Really excited for this. And we do have a series of uh, a few questions. But the the stars here, the heroes here really are our award winners and we wanna make sure we do save time um, if uh, any of the people um, listening today uh, have questions for them and uh, about any of the things that we discuss, uh, how they develop what they developed, how they use it, um, uh, and other things that we will talk about today. So I'm gonna start out and Kate, uh, perhaps I'll start out with you, um, with the first question of why did you start to leverage Legal analytics, and did you feel it gave you an advantage in your practice?
2: Sure. So I started leveraging legal analytics because there were questions that I needed to find answers for in order to find out how to best provide recommendations to our clients. So I initially was working on a project that a colleague of mine at the time, Joe Mellon from Kenobi, had come up with, and it was just uh, analyzing how effective different types of appeals were at the patent office, and at the time it required a lot of um, kind of manual effort of collecting data samples from the patent office website, and over time, different big data sources became available, so different software companies contacted me to see if I'd be interested in using them, And I continued these these projects here at law school to look at how effective uh, were pro bono pro uh, pro se inventors in patent prosecution versus larger entities, and how effective were um, different filing strategies for companies in the biologic fields. Um, And then, in uh, once I got to the law firm, it just kind of even exploded in different colleagues would come to me with different questions and I had these great tools at my disposal. So um, I continued to just answer the questions, um, find the right data source depending on what the question was and try to find the most accurate answer I could for any question.
1: Cool. Um, Great, great. Um, How about Eric?
3: Um, Sure, Uh, thanks very much. Analytics actually kind of came to me, um, rather than the other way around, in that about five or six years ago, um, I was called in by some of my transactional partners to look at uh, the litigation risk uh, of a target, of an acquisition or a potential target. Um, And uh, I I spent some time um, with the uh, managing directors of of the private equity fund that wanted to make the, uh, the purchase. And I I, I, I basically assessed the litigation the way that I knew how um, and provided a lot of lawyerly answers. You know, there's there's 50-50 risk here, the risk here is substantial, but didn't come anywhere near to placing numbers um, on any kind of assessment or quantification. And it became evident toward the end of the engagement, the end of the due diligence, that One of the managing directors in particular was rather frustrated at the fact that um, he couldn't get some kind of precise number. And and one night um, when we were debriefing, he uh, walked to the edge of the conference room and he slammed his hand down um, on it and, and basically said, Eric, you know, if we could quantify this litigation, maybe I could do something with it. Um, And I'd love to tell everybody that that was my light bulb moment and that, uh, you know, I had this great epiphany and and started down the trail of analytics. But right then and there, you know, I had two thoughts. One was litigation cannot be reliably quantified. And and even if it could, what could you do with it? Um, How very, very wrong I actually was. Um, When I started to research it, when our team started to research it, what we found out is that. Not only are there is there a ton of data out there with which to um, quantify litigation, um, but that there are tools and computational power that will allow you to get at that data. Um, You know, tools like Lexmachina and and other platforms. So. Um, we were able um, eventually to actually sell that litigation risk as a result of being able to quantify it um, uh, to another private equity firm that specializes um, in such um, uh, acquisitions. So it, it changed my practice and that it created a practice for me. Um, uh, you know, I, I now specialize in this area. Um, and without analytics, the area wouldn't wouldn 't even be uh, in existence, as I said. the same goes for the the, the plaintiffs, the litigation funding um, uh, market without an ability to quantify litigation that market doesn 't exist
1: yeah, fascinating, and we are seeing that market really start to I think explode now so um, all right, really interesting so we 've already seen um, Kate on the pat using data around patent prosecution strategies uh, now Eric. Uh, litigation quantifying risk and uh, mentioning litigation and litigation funding as well um so good it's so already two you know, very different uses um but both pioneering uses in their area um evan uh would you like to uh go next and talk to us how you started using to uh, started leveraging legal analytics
4: sure um i'd say i have a pretty similar story to the rest of the presenters so far but i, I think perhaps mine's even a bit more embarrassing I just got shamed into it um, by a really, really smart client. I was in the middle of a PowerPoint presentation to a client C-suite team discussing exposure and risk in a large uh, employment class action. And the CFO literally turned to me, and, and it seems with analytics it's often the CFO that drives a lot of these conversations, and said, so basically what you're doing is you're looking into a crystal ball and trying to predict the future and then telling us that you're really good at doing that and we should just trust you. And if I was buying an insurance policy, I'd left you out of here. I'd be looking at actuarial tables and statistics and data analysis. And, you know, why isn't that the case here since really we're just talking about quantifying risk? And she was absolutely right. Um, since that meeting, I've tried to take, I guess, in a meta sense, a very enterprise risk management approach to all aspects of my practice from litigation, counseling, transactional, uh, due diligence. And if you look at insurance companies or SpaceX or investment firms, these guys are already running probability models of the type that Kate and Eric were talking about um, to help predict outcomes and make better decisions. So why aren't we? So, you know, we've done a lot of things in this regard, but one of the things that I think has been really most um, productive in sort of opening the door in analytics with my clients was uh, after I worked with my firm to build what's called a Monte Carlo algorithm. And the idea is essentially that Um, You build a model with lots and lots of data and variables about what could happen in a case, and then run millions of simulations, um, and then you get a distribution model that shows the most likely outcomes and sometimes even the probability of specific events. So that absolutely has given me an advantage um, because you're doing a better job helping to predict the future. Um, in, in every sense of the litigation process, from deciding where to allocate your resources, um, which makes cases more efficient, to value the plaintiffs' demands and you know being able to assign a probability or rebut their demands by assigning probabilities, um, or um, figuring out which arguments are most likely to be productive in litigation, it, it creates a huge amount of leverage and helps your clients make better decisions. So you know this is incrementally taken over virtually every aspect of my practice, and um, you know what I'm seeing is that, that there was a time when this was a rarity and, and it's quickly becoming the norm. Mm, interesting, yeah.
1: Great, um, good stuff. Uh, Kyle, do you wanna, uh, can you also help address this question about how you started leveraging legal analytics?
5: Sure. So uh, I focused my career primarily on the management of mass tort uh, litigation. And uh, when I first started working on these cases uh, as an attorney, I gravitated towards some of the client reporting aspects of that litigation. So communicating to clients how we're doing on a portfolio of litigation. No one case defines success or performance of the entire docket. And so in order to communicate to our clients uh, a docket of now 36,000 pending cases, we had to use data analytics. So it was really driven by the necessity of communicating with our clients and presenting to them the big picture of what was actually going on on the ground and how we were actually doing. Um, that led me to a sort of a feedback loop where we built out the tools and technologies and modeling to better communicate with our clients, and then we were able to use those same tools, technologies, analytics, to also not only communicate with our clients, but also inform how we practice law itself. And then we got better and more efficient internally in terms of collaboration, communication across the firm, and in terms of actually how we uh, prioritize our resources uh, in handling large docket of cases. Nice. And you, and you feel that using analytics has given you an advantage? Absolutely. In the specific area where I practice, uh, you know, we couldn't do it without it. I mean, we wouldn't, it, we wouldn't be able to operate at the scale that we are today at 36,000 pending cases if we didn't have data analytics. We just wouldn't have been able to scale the practice in any efficient way. Um, and then, of course, more broadly, others in the firm have now seen, you know, these kinds of approaches and uh, have adopted them as well. And so they're also, you know, learning from the best practices that we've uh, kind of paved the way for Great. Great. Um, good. Well, thanks, everyone. Jackie, do you want to
1: hit the next question?
0: Sure. I'll jump in. So I think one of the, one of the questions Josh and I have been really curious about is just uh, over the course of your career, how do you think, you know, the attitude towards using data and analytics and legal practice has changed and developed? Uh, Kate, why don't you jump in here? I know you told one of our reporters that, that maybe in the beginning people were, were highly skeptical, is I think the way you put it.
2: Well, some of it has to do with just the availability. So as I had mentioned with these projects, it was really hard to get the data. And at the time, um, the person I was working with was intent on collecting data from every appeal, and that required, I would say, half an hour a day to an hour, depending on how many appeals there were. It was really tiring. And then when I was in law school, I would go on to, like I said, the patent office website and try to collect a statistically valid sample. And that would take weekends, months, um, to collect enough data to have a good sample test. It was really tiring and you know exhausting to get that amount of information. And then for people who weren't um, comfortable with statistics, understanding how much data you needed to appropriately answer the question was tricky. Or were you collecting the right types of data? Was there some bias to the data set that you were collecting that would mean that your answer was not valid for a particular use case? And like I said, now you're getting more of these big data tools, and once they became available, I mean, there were some issues with them initially. I don't think that that was necessarily a reason why people were skeptical, it's just that this is how, not using data is how law was done for a long time, not using um, big data at least, right, and people, were used to uh, understanding their particular situation. So when they'd go into the patent office, they knew uh, some of the examiners that they would be talking to personally because you kind of hit the same people over and over, or they felt like they had a general sense of how the patent office operated and what could be expected. And so the biggest um, issue that I face, not not so much within Kilpatrick, but um, generally, was trying to convince people that this was of any added value. And then even though I considered their experience useful, um, that this big data could show them a trend that might've started a couple weeks ago that they haven't had time to appreciate, right? And so yes, I think initially there was some skepticism that to some degree was valid, the data just wasn't there. Um, And then it took a while for many people to appreciate that their way of doing it, which was the, right way largely to do it for a long time uh, was no longer the best approach and that by supplementing experience with the big data you could uh, really benefit uh, from that uh, bigger data pool I suppose of your experience and the big data and derive better recommendations better strategies
0: right you can add you can add to it (laughs) add to current practice with it Mm -hmm. Um, Eric do you want to jump in here I know you and I had a conversation about sort of Shifting attitudes and and what you've encountered
3: yeah yeah I, I agree with Kate. you know there was a lot of skepticism early on and and that is waning. Um, we still have a at least a little ways to go and perhaps um, a, a lot of ways and for some of this, but what i i what I've been surprised with is the the class of attorney who have kind of embraced analytics and 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 tried to integrate it into their practice. Um, you know, a lot of the associates, you know, uh, of the millennial heritage, you know, grew up with technology much more than we did, um, and 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 also analytics in, in many respects. So they're very open to it. It's not hard to convince them. In fact, they come to you looking for uh, more tools to help them practice. Um, the second class that has actually been really receptive, at least over the last few years, are, are the older partners, which is it came as a as a big surprise to me, but. I think the older partners having seen, you know, uh the, you know uh the, the the change in their clients over the last 10 years as a result of analytics has caused them to believe that this really will be a revolution um for law firms as well um and the way in which we practice law. The, 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 the hard nuts to crack are, are those in between. Um, it's, it's the new partners who spent, you know, eight, nine, ten years, um, you know, developing a practice in the way in which they did things um, in order to get to partnership are, are very reticent to um, actually change anything um, now that they have, um, you know, achieved their goal. So it's it's you know and those are you know normally the workhorse you know of the firm um, you know the the young you know rainmakers and those coming up and and the future leaders so that's our challenge right now um, and and we're developing you know various ways in which to show them. That analytics um, can not also can not only be very useful to their practices, but it can increase efficiency, and more importantly, it can increase the quality of their practices. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time to do so. Um, you know, we try to show them that they can get at these analytics very quickly, um, and don't need to reinvent themselves in order to integrate this into their practice. But they do need to be open to it, and they and they do need to you know consult with those who are you know deep in the minds.
0: That's great. Evan, have you uh I'll pull you in here. Have you experienced something similar or, or what's been your perception of a of the change in attitude towards data and analytics and legal practice over the last few years?
4: I um I'd say I used to and to some extent still suffer from the glazed eye problem. Um but that's relatively easy to get through when you explain the value. Um yes, you might have to listen to me nerd out about these things for five to ten minutes, but the upside you know, relative to that is so huge that if you can cut down on legal spend and make it more likely to get great results, that's not such a challenge. It, it can sell itself pretty quickly. What, what I think is that really the challenge depends on the nature of the particular use of analytics. Some things are very easy sells, especially to um, folks like CFOs uh, who are very focused on the metrics. Um, you know if you, you do a probability analysis that 's very easy to persuade someone to do once you convince them that it 's not going to be expensive or particularly time consuming that 's a no brainer but then there's other things that involve the use of analytics that get more pushback because they at least innately feel riskier. Um, personally, for example, personally I, I really like to couple expert surveys with data analytics where you 're testing sort of anecdotally in a representative fashion um, what testimony might look like and then cross-referencing that with hard data from the client's um, internal resources and use that to test the plaintiff's core hypothesis, Um, you know, causation or a, a nexus between a particular fact and a perceived result. And that takes some trust because if it goes wrong, the client's perspective is, well, aren't we potentially creating negative evidence? And what I found is in order to challenge that fear, we can do it in two ways. First, um, the development of a successful track record sure helps. You know, having done this over some time, it's much easier every time we, we try to sell this type of project. Um, In the context of of a uh, litigation defense, it gets easier and easier because you can demonstrate in a very real way how it's worked in other cases, but also just really careful, thoughtful explanation that this is essentially a scientific test. This isn't us just rolling the dice and hoping that the analytics will demonstrate a particular outcome. It's typically much more efficient, in my experience, to say what we're going to do is test the validity of the plaintiff's hypothesis. Not that we're going to create evidence necessarily, that's a different issue, but we're going to, at least in in the class action work I do in the employment space, look to see if the data really supports the causal nexus between the plaintiff's theory and some particular outcome. So once you explain it in that way, I think it gets a lot more uh, easy to get sign-on from executives who see that you're not just rolling the dice and hoping for a good result
0: kind of a, a step-by-step process. Um, yep. Kyle, I'll, I'll pull you in here, too. Uh, what's, what's your experience been? I know your perspective is a little different.
5: Sure. I mean, I think there was a substantial amount of skepticism that I ran into, uh, you know, throughout the past couple of years with this. I think fundamentally it could be described in terms of a kind of a skepticism internally about whether or not uh, legal analytics is really a form of legal analysis, Um, And I think that, uh, you know, we've proven that it is. Uh, At its highest and best use, it it really does the same underlying function that uh, experience plays traditionally for attorneys. And I think that's why it is threatening to to most traditional attorneys. Um, You you have uh, attorneys, historically, the the criteria on which they're selected, on which they're assessed professionally as well as hired, is their expertise. That's what they bring to the table. Um, And data analytics does uh, kind of challenges that in terms of offering another basis to make professional judgments as well as another basis on which a firm could be selected uh, for work. And I think that you know, in a traditional field like uh, the legal industry, uh, that certainly can upend a very fundamental premise for how the profession works. I think that over time, though, people have seen um, you know, the results that it's, that it's had. Uh, they've seen that uh, this, isn't, this is not an instance of the machines coming to replace us. Uh, this isn't about automation. This is about augmentation. <laughs> This is about taking uh, what we do best, which is our legal analysis, our client relationships, and letting us leverage those even better than we could in the past.
0: That's fascinating. Um, Josh, do you want to jump back in here?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to turn to the question of risks. Are there pitfalls we need to be aware of? Um, what do you see of, of, as risks, or have come up as risks in, in terms of leveraging data, leveraging analytics? Um, and anyone, feel free to, to jump in on this one.
4: So, um, this is Evan. Maybe I'll start just because I want to piggyback off of something that Kyle said that I liked a lot about. Um, it's not automata- not automation, but augmentation. I think that's really well said. You know what I see as a huge risk with this is the same risk we see every time we introduce new tools into the profession, and that's to some extent sloppiness bred from overreliance and overconfidence in the tools. Um, you know, I remember when we first started really relying on Lexis and Westlaw, we saw some sloppiness generated as a result. Same thing when we started relying on knowledge management systems, and we saw you know people cutting and pasting form files um, that, that didn't really involve a lot of uh, legal analysis particular to the case at hand. And I see the same problem with big data, where um, attorneys um, across the table from me often start relying on data as if it's somehow valuable in and of itself without doing the strategic legwork to make it valuable. Um, you know, So it's the eternal garbage in, garbage out problem. Um, companies have a lot of data available to them, but you have to be able to call out things that are irrelevant or unreliable. For example, I often go um, and find both clients and opposing counsel getting really focused on what they consider to be the quote going rate for class action settlements. And my perspective is that's nonsense. There's no going rate for a class action settlement. To be sure, there's benchmarking data that can help you figure out comps relating to particular components of your case. But first, you have to call out all the data from cases that are dissimilar to yours and you know what i'm finding is opposing counsel often not even doing an apples to oranges analysis but it's an apples to steak sandwich analysis where you know the the metrics that they're relying on are really so dissimilar from our case but then they get hung up in the fact that they've measured something you know what matters is understanding how to couple the legal analysis and the relevant um, posture procedurally and factually of your case to the most relevant data, and that's that takes some work. Um, it's not necessarily time-consuming or expensive, but it's thought work that's irreplaceable. The data is not going to speak for itself.
3: This is Eric. I, I couldn't agree more with Evan. Um, you know, I, I think that that this is one of our biggest risks, and it goes to something he said earlier as well, and that's the trust factor. Um, you know that the data has limitations. Um, you know, in, in both in the way it's used and, and the data itself. Um, and it keeps getting better and better, and it will continue to get better. But when people kind of blindly rely, you know, on on the analytics or, or what's presented on a particular platform, they can get in trouble. That's 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 the sloppiness that Evan was talking about. Um, and I think that, you know, if we can be transparent, you know, both the, the data providers as well as the, the lawyers who are talking to their clients about these limitations with the data, I actually think it will do the opposite of what might be intuitive. It will actually help us trust the data even more. Um, um, if, if, if you can understand, you know, um, you know where you have holes um, and, and where you can't fill them, but also show where there is value I think the entire data set becomes that much more valuable. It becomes that much more trusted and credible and it'll aid you in, in your strategy decisions. Um, so, you know, I think that's the biggest risk. You know, we, we have to be careful about how this data is used.
1: You were also saying, Eric, Oh, I was just going
3: to
1: one question for Eric. You were also saying about kind of transparency of, um, uh, to us before, a kind of transparency of data, where the data comes from. Kate, maybe you were going to chime in on that as well.
2: So I'll let um, Eric can speak to that, and I can jump on another point. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it if you would like, but you can um, talk about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, the transparency is is, is- – I mean I'm not exactly sure of your question josh um you know it's It's important, and you know we, we do little things like in Lex machina, one of the things that you have is you've got all sorts of notes next to your analytics, and it explains you know what those limitations are, and you know you know where relevancy is an issue and or might not be an issue. Those are the things that I think we have to continue to do as as both providers um and as attorneys with our clients. In order to show them that, you know, there is credible insight here, but you have to know exactly what the data source is, how the data is being gathered, um, and, and as I said, you know, a few times, you know, what the limitations of that data is.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point, and I think that's, that's kind of the bargain that, that we that we make sort of with each other, right? And, you know, to some extent, it's for, you know, for you guys saying, hey, we're changing our practice of law to – you know, use data, um, and the and the, the bargain on the other side is, you know, providers say, okay, we're going to provide you with trusted, accurate data, um, right. and yeah, I know that's something we take very seriously, so appreciate you calling out the notes. I mean, I know, for example, you know, if you come up with an analytic solution that just relies on NOS codes, right, the nature of suits codes that, that are entered, um, you're going to be relying, you know, then people are going to be relying on, on faulty information, because we know that those, those NOS codes are over-inclusive and also underinclusive, and there are NOS codes for certain areas like commercial law. So if systems just rely on those, um, then people are relying on inaccurate data, and I think that's that's a that's a danger um, of giving providers a black eye if, if if people lose confidence in the in the data sources. So um, I do think that's a really important important topic as well. Yeah, and we're uh, going to get you yeah, know. Sorry, but keep going.
3: No, I mean, you know, I, luckily we're going to get beyond that, and, and we're not going to have to rely on, you know, the coding that was, you know, originally implemented into these databases. I know this is, you know, you know all of this, Josh, but just for the, the benefit of our audiences, you know, we're uh, an industry that relies on text, and so one of our big challenges has been, you know, getting at that text and being able to, you know, use it to create analytics. And the advent and and, and uh, uh, continuation of the development of natural language processing is actually allowing you know analytics providers like like Lexmeconna to actually go into the underlying documents to actually extract those um, analytics um, you know directly without relying on the coding, so it's going to get better and better, but it's going to take time
1: yeah yeah that's very i mean I think what you said is, is critical, but that's very, very hard to do. Uh, not everybody does it, but I agree with you. I think that's that's what's needed for sure. Um, thanks. Uh, Kate, would you want to jump in on this?
0: Yeah, so I was going to
2: say a couple of things. I mean, one of the issues with regard to the degree to which data is reliable is you have to define a particular question. And I was speaking to this earlier. If you're looking at a data set that is too broad for your specific use case, it will give you a wrong answer, right? If I say what's the allowance rate of the patent office, and my case is on file, and it's assigned to a particular art unit, the allowance rate of the patent office in general is about 70%, but there are art units that have allowance rates of 5% at given points in time, right? Or even lower. Mm -hmm. So that's a very different answer. So I need to be specific on my question. And then also with regard to understanding the context, and I've seen a a couple of instances where as practitioners we can provide a color that people might not appreciate. So again, in the patent uh, context, one of the data points that has been used, has been provided, is what is the probability of receiving an allowance after you interview? But that question as a practitioner I know you, you'll have a different answer depending on who initiated the interview. So, if the examiner initiates an interview and gives you a call, a lot of the time what that means is that the examiner wants to allow the case and he's proposing an amendment to you that if you accept it, he'll allow it. So, the statistics associated with that kind of interview are going to be very favorable because it oftentimes leads to an allowance. Meanwhile, if the applicant is initiating an interview and then you you've gotten a rejection that you talk about, and you might get an allowance or you might not. It's just not going to be a solitary rate. And in recent years, the patent office has started to separate the tagging of those different types of instances, and so have the big data providers. But that's just one, one illustration of how being in the thick of things, you know, as a practitioner that sees this every day, you can recognize that the data might not be as simple as it could be portrayed.
1: Great. Yeah, that's a great example. Great example of being, have the you know, necessity of being able to drill down. And we say the same in the litigation, it's all about finding cases like yours, right? It doesn't matter what this judge does in this other area, um, you know, finding cases like yours. That's you, know, you just said it's a great illustration in the prosecution side. So, um, great. Anyone else on this topic before we move on?
5: Yeah, this is Kyle Poe the- I think that- uh, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that it, it's not a panacea, right? This isn't going to solve all your problems. That you really need to pay attention to how you're going to be using data analytics as part of your particular practice, um, and it's an essential element. But you know, to really t- supercharging one's legal practice, but it's not, uh, you know, won't do it by itself. It's not uh, automatic. It needs to be implemented. I think one needs to pay attention to essentially four elements here to have a successful, to successfully integrate data analytics into their practice. You have to focus on the analytics itself, obviously the technologies to bring that analytics to the forefront. Uh, You need time investment on the part of attorney subject matter experts, as well as, you know, uh, subject matter experts like uh, paralegals who have been working on dockets for a long time. One needs to pay attention to staffing, of how you're staffing your matters, as well as, uh, finally, the fee arrangement that you have in place. To successfully leverage uh, legal analytics, uh, one needs to keep all four of those elements in mind.
4: And this is Evan. I, I think Kate also raises an, an interesting point, which is in addition to all the other things we've talked about, it's important to go in with an open mind because it's not always clear that um, the things that you think will be the prime movers in your case or, or situation will, in fact, be the prime movers. And you may encounter some frustration with the results. You know, finding out, for example, as Kate said, that a particular person who's looking at your situation may be the this positive issue. You know, that's not necessarily something that a client is expecting or wants to hear, um, but a really critical one. So I, I think that speaks to both the value of what's going on here because we're looking at characteristics that drive outcomes that, you know, in previous decades nobody was really paying attention to. I think we all subjectively understood it was happening, but there was no way to measure the, you know, the the real significance that those things played and also the importance of front loading to your clients that you have to be ready for these outcomes that you know it, it it may be that there are fundamental causes well beyond things that are either in your control um, or that um, you could have initially planned for and over time that will change as we identify these characteristics but you know, as you dig deeper, you start finding things that are um, beyond what I think were previously identified to clients as as really important characteristics.
1: Cool. Um, that's great. I think, uh, well, actually, Jackie, you want to take the next
0: one? Sure. Um, so I think we also want to kind of look to the future a bit here. And and just ask, you know, what do you think is the next frontier here? Uh, what's the thing you hope to tackle next, or, or how do you expect analytics to to further impact the legal profession? Uh, Eric, do you want to do you want to start, and then anyone can kind of jump in? I know you and I had a had an interesting chat about this.
3: Sure, sure, no problem. I'm. Um, As as I said in in the beginning, you know, it kind of created a practice for me. So I think what data analytics is going to do is either help us expand current practices or actually create new ones. So all the practices, you know, that are, uh, you know, related to the uh, litigation funding, you know, industry as well as the, the industry that I primarily work in, and that's, you know, a defense side sale of litigation risk. Um, you know, as I said those those uh, practices just wouldn't even be in existence. Um, so I think that that's one of the you know big impacts that's already taking place. Um, I also think that eventually it's going to fundamentally change the way in which law firms are structured. Um, uh, there are a lot of law firms that, especially larger law firms that are are considering you know using their subsidiaries for Something other than uh, things like selling products. Um, you know, there are some subsidies, there are subsidiaries out there that, that sell technology products. I think you're going to see more of that. You're going to see the development of um, uh, of tools um, where the real value is is the data from the law firm, and, and law firms will start to sell data. You know, through these tools. Um, And, uh, you know, that will become a new revenue source. But they can also start to operate out of that subsidiary and start to recapture work that they've lost over the years due to the commoditization problem. Um, You know, as litigation and other practices get commoditized, um, you know, the, the price at which you can charge for them, you know, obviously is reduced. Um, So um, what I think is going to happen is these data analytic tools are going to be placed into the subsidiary. We're going to use data analytics to determine who the most efficient um, uh, uh, um, providers are, um, uh, you know, for certain types of cases. Um, and uh, and that's going to allow, you know, law firms to kind of recapture that revenue um, as well as selling products um, that are data analytics-based. So I, I think it's going to be a fundamental transformation. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's already being talked about, um, um, and certainly over in Europe um, these discussions are, are even more advanced than, than they are here in the United States.
0: That's fascinating, just something, uh, uh, sort of a revenue stream that's kind of outside the the traditional billable hour. Uh, Yeah, it's
3: that that commoditization, you know, so you're not going to have your high profile, you know, $1,000 an hour, $1,500 an hour litigators. or or, or transactional lawyers, you know, getting commoditized work. So that work is going to start to shrink the high-end work that's hard to estimate the complex cases. So how do you replace that revenue? And I think it's through, you know, selling products to, you know, certain customers as as well as that subsidiary operation.
0: Kyle, what about you? Do you uh, have a perspective on kind of what's next for you and and for this type of practice?
5: Yeah, I guess from my perspective, I think there's probably two frontiers of legal analytics. There's top-down and bottom-up. So I think top-down would be how to run a law firm. And so collecting data analytics, you know, on various offices, various practice groups, uh, so that one can better inform how we are efficient at handling the work that we do have. The other is bottom-up, which is where I traditionally started. So that's using data analytics to actually practice law better. I think the really holy grail here of legal analytics would be a data infrastructure that can run the full gamut, the full legal analytics stack, from how to practice to how to run a law firm. And that's, what I'm, that's my next frontier is to build out that infrastructure.
0: I think a couple of points on
2: that? Yeah. So one uh, strategy, technique, approach that I've been able to use since having data analytics is to show quality. So in my industry, there are individual small tasks that are frequently um, budgeted. So the client will say, we'd like a patent application to be written, and you agree on how much it's going to cost and you write it. And then you get a rejection from the patent office, and you may have some agreement in terms of how much it's going to cost for you to write a response, and you get the response, and then you agree on how much it's going to cost for an interview with the examiner if you're going to go that route, and you have the interview. And this continues throughout the life cycle of the patent application. And so what we've been able to do is to look at a higher level and identify the overall cost of prosecution. And provide that, you know, kind of across a set of cases. And then we can also go to a client and say, even if you increase the cost of particular tasks in this manner by a small degree, overall that will save you money, right? And so it's a different approach to budgeting as well, and it has some data behind it to say this is what we expect as an overall Uh, cost which wasn't really done before it was there was a reason why everything was priced like by the hour or per task because you couldn't estimate how long a case was going to go and then i'll also say in terms of this prediction of the life life cycle we have a lot of different decisions to make throughout patent prosecution how are you going to respond to a given office action are you going to interview who do you want at the interview are you going to appeal are you going to give up this case so you can spend more money for another case right And with all of this data at our fingertips now, there's smarter ways to make these decisions. And so one of the more recent approaches that I've been interested in is to use a game theory approach, which looks at a set of combined probabilities and values. um, And it gives you some indication about what's the smartest route to go objectively in view of your situation. Um, And so it's a new way of providing kind of a a recommendation of what to do in particular circumstances, given
0: a particular client's goals. I love that idea, using game theory in this context. I just think that's really fascinating. Uh, Evan, do you uh, have a thought or two here before we move on?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I guess two quick points. You know, first, between... Eric and, and uh, I, I'm not sure what's what will be left of the legal profession because my thought is that, um, you know, one of the next big things is going to be machine learning that's going to cut out a lot of the lower to mid-level work. Um, I think Eric was focused on, you know, the high-level thought work, but there's a lot of stuff that machine learning, and I'm careful not to use the phrase artificial intelligence because I really don't think this is artificial intelligence. I think machine learning that it will just allow us to – brings some automate automation into the process of doing relatively standardized tasks like putting together affirmative defenses, objections to discovery, certain form discovery, um, removal papers, things like that, that really um, uh, you are able to build efficient systems that automate the majority of that work subject to quality assurance review by qualified attorneys. So, you know, my thought is that's going to free up a lot of time and resources for clients to pay for the really high-level thought work, you know, getting their resources to where it's going to have the biggest bang for the buck. That, I think, is first. So that, that falls under the machine learning category. Personally, my next frontier, and I think that there's going to be a lot more of this in the legal community generally, is continuing to focus on predictive analytics. That's what I'm really obsessed with. Um, Right now, we're at a point where where I'm able to run uh, models relating to the likelihood of a particular dollar outcome or even sometimes the likelihood of a particular uh, uh, result um, for an issue within the life cycle of a case. But we're almost at the point where we're going to be able to take a peek into the likelihood that a particular judge will rule based on a specific issue in a particular way. Um, based on an argument or facts. Um, And we're starting to see that now. Um, uh, Lex Machina, for example, is, you know, giving us currently insight into a certain judge's track record with respect to a particular type of motion. What's the likelihood that they're going to grant an ex parte application for a certain type of relief? And how does that compare with some other judges? So I think we're really close as a profession to cracking that nut. The data is available now it's just a question of, of figuring out the most efficient way to use that in a reliable way and, and take out as much of the human element as possible, and that's really, really exciting stuff um, and can have a fundamental impact on how um, we decide to, to pursue and defend our cases.
0: So maybe, uh, maybe not quite robot lawyers uh, coming our way, but it sounds like uh, some big changes in how a legal team might, might tackle a case. I Sounds think like it frees us, that's up, what you're expecting. frees
4: us up to do – frees us up to focus on the highest level work and really the, the more fun mm-hmm. stuff, you know, spending less time on the portions of the practice that are relatively rote um, and mundane and allowing right. us to come up with, you know, creative arguments and really s- synthesizing high-level case analysis rather than focusing on the, the day-to-day just movement of the case forward. Right.
0: Josh, I'll, I'll kick it back to you.
4: Sure.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and I think we heard a, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple times um, augmentation, not automation. Um, I think your you know, uh, last point speaks to that as well. And I just got to say, this is so fascinating. You guys are pioneers. And I mean, seven years ago, <clears throat> or more when I started at Lex you I could never even really dream of having a conversation at this level. We're talking about what you guys were already doing and even t- and talking about, Stuff for the future as well, and talking about quantification of risk, and um, talking about data-driven decisions. I mean, this, that's what it's all about. You know, we said it's you know you still need these expert attorneys with their experience um, to advise, make you know advise and make decisions, but these will be now data-driven decisions, and that's why these are data-driven lawyer words and these are all just great, great. Uh, examples of this Um, some of you join part way we will have a recording everybody will get so don't worry about that Um, we can take a few questions we have one now um, that I will take and then we have a wrap-up that's kind of related but this says how does a litigator get smart about how, how to find and develop useful data analytics for their litigation practice Eric do you want to start on that one
3: well you start with Lex Machina right Um, that, that's, that's, that's the easiest place to go right now. One of the more robust tools, um, you know, and, and, and I, I think that it just behooves any litigator who is trying to, you know, adapt analytics into their practice, you know, to try to do some experimentation. You know, to uh, you know, to spend some time on uh, on these uh, commercial platforms, see what's available. Um, you know, what the sites are designed um, to provide. And then you know there are ways in which to you know use the commercial sites to dig even deeper um, to create your own analytics um, uh, aside from the analytics that you know aren't provided or the, the the platforms are not designed to provide at least not not at this juncture. But you got to dig in just you know at least a little bit. You don't have to become an expert in, in any of this, but you have to start to expose yourself. And and one of the things that I, I know Kate and others will talk about. Is you know you you need to understand your data sources. That's really important, and how this uh, data is being mined. And I think Kate already alluded to that, but that's really really important.
1: Yeah. Well, let's get to that. And again, welcome more questions if they come up. But <clears throat> one of the questions that we're going to do is a, a little bit of a wrap up. Um, is please give us your your top three recommendations for attorneys who want to integrate legal analytics into their practice Eric you already spoke to this a little bit specifically Mm -hmm. around litigation Um, other folks want want to jump in with top recommendations
2: I mean going back to some of the things that we've already talked about it's really important to define your question specifically and to ensure that your data set is appropriate given that question is it too broad, is it too narrow, is it the right data size, is it from the right data source, to how complete is it? All right. So I guess question one is, or consideration number one is know what questions you're gonna ask. Question Consideration number two is get the right data for that question. Number three, know how to interpret it. I mean, after being in, involved in data analytics for a decade now um i i oftentimes have a sense that something seems off or it just seems you know like a too odd of an answer or too inconsistent with my recent experience at the patent office and having that kind of instinct uh, has helped a lot because most of the time i can push back on the data and have some indication about what it should be and then uh there's Oftentimes an issue with how the data set was generated or there was a misinterpretation if you know, it's from an actual person that's collecting it Um, so I think all of those three things defining the question making sure you're having the right data set and analyzing it appropriately with some sort of Mm -hmm. Understanding of what makes sense in this context, you know some um, High-level check on whether the data seems like it's reasonable.
1: Good. Well, helpful. Anyone else want to jump in?
4: This is Evan. I guess, quickly, um, my top recommendation would be, since we're talking about somebody who wants to start integrating analytics into their practice, Mm -hmm. just don't be overwhelmed or afraid of the math or statistics end of this. Um, That doesn't have to be a bar to entry. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things along the spectrum of how you can utilize analytics into your practice and you don't have to be a statistician or programmer to do this. Um, as I think uh, probably Eric said, you know the, the the right place to begin is exposing yourself to it. And that could be as simple as poking around in a valued resource and just finding benchmarking data and presenting that to a client and teasing out collectively you know what the relevance of that is. Um, and as you get more adept at understanding the data and um, its utility, then you can start getting much more sophisticated, but but that first baby step is a critical point of entry. Um, the second recommendation is to be really thoughtful about what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, I've, I've seen colleagues and and opposing counsel just kind of get overwhelmed and say, all right, I've researched all this data under the sun, and." than just present it like somehow it speaks for itself. I think it's really helpful to have a goal in mind, typically a hypothesis that you're trying to either prove or disprove and the narrower the better. Um, and the final one um, is really perhaps for me more of a pet peeve than than a recommendation, but I think we have to stop calling everything artificial intelligence. Um, the truth is that we're nowhere near reliable AI and that that gives, both a false sense of security and also is a bit overwhelming to clients. I think what you need to do is explain, again, precisely what it is that you're trying to test and frame it as a scientific analysis. Um, And whether you do that internally or you work with an outside expert to do it, explaining to your clients um, what it is you're trying to achieve is going to prevent um, some really negative reactions if you've either overpromised or you have misjudged what is really realistic given the data that's available to you. It's, it's better to set expectations appropriately so that everybody understands what it is you're trying to achieve and how to get there.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, anyone else on this one?
5: Yeah, this is Kyle Poe. I think uh, there's three things that I would have to offer would be, first, uh, don't go it alone. Uh, You should seek out the assistance of others who have paved the way before, uh, whether those people are attorneys or not, um, people who have worked in this field before. Uh, Second, I would say you need to develop a a core group of legal practice data analysts who can in time become non-lawyer subject matter experts in particular areas, so that way they can understand the models and they can offer uh, sort of a first-cut analysis of um, where to look next and how to frame your questions uh, meaningfully. That dialogue is, really can't be understated, having the, between the data analysts and the attorneys. And then third, I think I would say, is uh, don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, I think in this respect, you've got to consider there's a distinction between what would be public data versus private data. And for the public data, certainly if there are tools like Lex Machina that uh, cover the subject matter that you're working in, Use those tools uh, don't don't try and go don't, don't try and reinvent that wheel if it's private data or public data that isn't tracked by one of the uh, publicly available services. I think one should think long and hard about what it's going to take to really build that data, how you're going to get those data sources, how you're going to keep it up to date, keep it synced, etc well,
1: that's great, and I'll sum these up a, kind of right before we end, but I, I like to, um, and I think it was, Evan was you know don't be overwhelmed by the math statistics um, piece you know we were sort of testing some of the um uh, some of our analytics you know and and the um some new stuff we're coming out with someone said you know you know th- this is really helpful because a lot of lawyers are history majors and they're you know afraid of data or something and I said it kind of resonated with me because I'm a history major you know I'm not a math major a statistician uh, and <laughs> um and so you know maybe that's why I got interested in this try to try to make some of these tools easy for folks so I agree with that point you know you don't you do not have to be I mean, some some people on this call are doing even more advanced stuff where it certainly wouldn't hurt but for the average lawyer absolutely do not do not have to be um, and Eric um, uh, you it's in the article that that you run uh, boot camps for for attorneys at your firm
3: yeah I mean for that you know purpose uh, to, you know to, to also you know not only train them on you know the available resources we have but also to help them figure out how to integrate, um, you know, into their practice. And, and most specifically, we try to teach them how easy some of this stuff is. It's, it's not all easy and it does take the diligence that everyone has, has talked about, um, you know, when you're entering into this, um, discipline, this field, but there are also, you know, ways in which, um, you know, you can use analytics without a ton of investment. If you are talking as, as, um, um, as Kyle said, you know, to those who, you know, are, um, you know, steeped in this stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I think those boot camps are are, are are not only a way to, you know, train our attorneys, you know, on platforms like Lex Machina and others, but, you know, they're also a way to, you know, uh, get enthusiasm um, and change the culture, which ultimately is going to have to happen if this transformation that, you know, some of us have been talking about is going to take place.
1: Yeah. I agree. Um, We have another question that says, what types of data outside of legal data do you utilize in your analytics? So, I know uh, a a few folks sort of touched on that. Um, Is there anything particularly, Evan or Kyle, that you want to mention?
5: Well, I think it really depends on what kind of cases one's working on. Obviously, the underlying – if there's a lot of underlying data in that case, uh, then – you know, that's directly relevant to the case itself. Uh, Obviously, being able to leverage data analytics out that's not traditionally legal as data sources is is really important. Uh, For example, in the labor employment space, doing things like reduction in force calculations, uh, we have very complicated models that we we build and we use to assess those kinds of questions. So uh, I think those are more employment data, but it's in the legal context. So I think being nimble with data um, is obviously really important here.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's correct, Mrs. Um, Evan. I, you know, it really does depend on the case, but I focused on labor and employment as well. And, um, you know, client-facing data or client-generated data is uh, really our bread and butter. I mean, the the information about what courts do and what settlements look like and what judgments look like is helpful, but that all has to be cross-referenced with um, what the client's internal data reflects because usually we're testing, again, a particular hypothesis that you know, a particular fact X is creating, uh, allegedly creating a legal outcome Y, and that's presented often as a mathematical calculation, essentially as a mathematical formula, by plaintiff's counsel, and they say, because one has a direct um, outcome derivative relationship of the other, um, that's why we can certify this as a class or treat it in some representative basis, because one thing always creates this particular outcome and the more that we can look into data that tends to reflect human behavior, employee behavior, um, the better off we are. You know, not just obvious things like what do their time records say, but things that are reflective of how they spend their time and and how they make decisions. What's their, um, you know, card swipe at the elevator look like? Um, When do they access the parking garage? Um, How long do they typically wait Uh, in line before swiping in. You know, that kind of data that speaks to human experience, um, which isn't per se legal data, um, but it certainly is critical to the outcome of our legal disputes, um, is really the bread and butter of my practice.
1: Interesting. Kate, anything from your practice?
2: Well, we use some budget data as well. It's largely based on our internal system. So I I had mentioned giving some indication of what things will cost. And the big data that's available to us is um, largely related to particular events at the patent office. How many office actions were there? How many requests for continued examinations were there? But clients want to know how much they're going to pay. So you have to translate all of those things into money, um, into dollar amounts. And you can do that based on what you typically charge or what is typically charged around your firm. You can look to AIPLA data for what's often charged for similar types of um, technologies, right? But it's a way of translating the data that can be accurately tracked across all applications into a variable that matters to the client. So I think, I mean, I agree with the sentiment of trying to take the data that's available to us and present a variable that's of meaning to um, a client or a company or a potential
1: client. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing. Um, well, with that, I'd like to I'd like to wrap up, um, and uh, by doing so, I first like to once again congratulate our award winners. You are pioneers in this legal analytics uh, movement. I think it's fair to say, uh, given the discussion today. Um, and, and I've just seen it how critical it is um, to have someone at a firm who's pioneering this, who can be the advocate uh, within the firm. Um, and I see how firms struggle with this, and it's not always, you know, kind of, you know, some, yeah, some of the, you know, younger folks pushing for this and older folks resisting. So I, I talk to managing partners who are like, "Hey, we're all in favor of this, but we got to bring the rest of the partnership along with us. They're not there yet." So it, this is—it's all really early, early days and just fascinating how you guys have each integrated um, analytics into your practice. So congratulations again to each of you. Um, to wrap up on that last question with recommendations for attorneys who want to integrate legal analytics into their practice, um, yeah, some of the things that, that I heard um, was, you know, ask clear questions and understand how it relates to law, have a hypothesis for what you are trying to answer uh, understand the source of the data and its limitations. One thing we always say here, it's it's worse to use bad analytics than no analytics. <laughs> um, so understand the source um, that, and if it's a tool you're looking at or uh, the source of data that you're getting on your own, understand the source and its limitations. Um, helping others understand how valuable these analytics really are, being an advocate, and um, Eric talked about that in the boot camps. You know. And if there's not an expert at the firm, maybe you become that expert. Um, And uh, I'm sure some of the folks here would have tips for you on on that, but you could become that go-to person. And I think the last one, I think, again, most critical, don't be overwhelmed um, by math, statistics. Um, At the same time, don't go it alone. If there is someone who's an expert or someone who's already doing doing some of this, um, you can turn to them. Um, But, you know, just dive in to these tools, um, uh, you know, don't get scared off by the, the math statistics part. Um, just dive in. A lot of this is very user-friendly, um, and when you spend some time with it, um, I think you'll, you'll find that you're able to integrate into your practice. So um, that was uh, the other thing that I, that I gleaned from what folks had to say. So uh, on behalf of Jackie and I, I want to thank, you know, again, this is a Law360 uh, project, and Jackie did so much work on this. Um, and I really hats off to the whole wall 360 team. And once again, congratulations to our award winners. Thanks everyone for listening. We will get a copy uh, out to everyone who registered and um, so you can get into more detail. So thanks again.
0: Thanks so much everyone.
2: Thank you.